following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
to John Bunyan. Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? John Bunyan was the author of Pilgrim's Progress. It was first published in 1678. Other than the Bible, it has been the most constantly published work in the English language. He opens his allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came to a certain place where there was a cave. I lay down in that place to sleep. As I slept, I dreamed a dream. And in this dream, I saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a place with his face turned away from his own house. And he had a book in his hand and a heavy burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and begin to read. And as he read, he wept, trembled. Not being able to control himself, he cried out in a loud voice, What shall I do? Of course, he began his journey, his pilgrimage, from the city of destruction. Until a man or a woman is willing to recognize that they live in the city of destruction, and the word of God finally comes to them and says, Wilt thou wilt thou leave thy sin? Until a person reads the word and begins to seriously consider it and lay aside all of the things of this world, until a person becomes sufficiently sober, no longer drunk on the on the wine of this world. God will come and he will address you. Now we call that in the Christian language, we call that conversion. And at conversion a man or woman makes a decision to leave their sin. They repent one by one of each of the areas and each of the items that they have stacked up against God. Repentance is a recognition of what I have done wrong to God. And with that is remorse. With that is a sense of I can't do this any longer. I'm going to die if I keep doing this, and I'm going to go to hell. And as that conviction comes upon their heart, brought by the Holy Spirit, they abandon their works of darkness, and they turn with a whole heart to Jesus. They have renounced their sin And they have asked Jesus to come and cleanse them and purify and wash them. Now, what happens after that? That's where the rubber hits the road. 
And many, like Simon Magus I spoke of yesterday, aborted his salvation, aborted his conversion. He was baptized. He was a believer in Jesus. But he would not leave his magic. His life depended, in his mind, on his being able to be somebody. His heart was filled with bitterness. He was angry. He was in the bondage of sin. Now, many of you have aborted your conversion because after you were converted, you went back to your sin. After the word of God came to you, the conviction was there, and you made a covenant, and you were baptized, and you said, I now belong to Jesus. But lying heresies spoken of in the book of Jude, if you read Jude carefully, you'll find that always there will be lying teachers and prophets who will come and teach you that you can be saved in the midst of your sin. Now, it's of interest to me that in the latter part of the scriptures, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Romans, we have these very precise theological studies. And they're of great import to me, and I have spent my life reading and studying and having them unveiled to me by the Holy Spirit. But we also have in the Old Testament these same principles worked out in the lives of the old patriarchs. And it's of great value to notice these processes that the old patriarchs were taken through as they came into that oneness with Jesus. Now, the old patriarchs did not have the same advantage that we have, for the Holy Spirit could only walk beside them He could not dwell in them because Jesus had not yet been glorified. After Jesus was glorified, it was a new day. It was a new day, unlike any day prior to this in the history of the world. And the new day was the gospel of Jesus Christ, which said, if you were crucified with Christ, he would come and the Holy Spirit would baptize you, plunge you into himself, and he would come and dwell inside of you, no longer walking with you, but walking and being in you. Now, conversion, we repent, we confess our sins, we repent, And then we begin a pilgrimage. Now, in some cases in the scripture, like the Apostle Paul, it was only a three-day pilgrimage. 
There's some who want to say that his three years in Arabia, or however many years it was, was a part of the pilgrimage of dealing with his sin. The scriptures do not teach that. In three days, he was through, he was finished, he knew who he was, and he was on his way. Now he had to grow up in Jesus. But he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the fire of God had burned out that old man's nature. Now, I'd like to share with you some thoughts today on the life of Jacob. I've spoken prior to this about Jacob, but I want to go much more in depth today because I want to supplement and illustrate from the scripture the pilgrimage of righteousness. And that's what we are all called to. That's what Bunyan was addressing. It's why we called this broadcast Pilgrim's Progress. I want you to make progress. I want you to finally come into the full baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want you to be filled with Jesus Christ. (laughs) I tell you, yesterday was a day of agonizing struggle for me. It was not a struggle with sin. It was a struggle to simply rest in Jesus. Nothing in the physical realm looked very promising, but I've learned the hard way not to trust what it looks like in the physical realm. I trust what Jesus says it is. And so I spent my time reading the word, praying, walking, praying, reading the word. This morning I woke up and it was like the sun broke out. The Holy Spirit was so filling my heart. And the joy of the Lord was so present with me. All I could do was roll out of bed onto my face and begin to praise and worship Jesus. He is so precious and dear to my heart. I love Jesus. He's everything to me. I'm not much into church machinery. I'm not much into all of the stuff that seems to get attached to the Christian faith. I just want Jesus. I love Jesus. And I love the Holy Spirit. And I love my Father. It's been a change for me. I've been I've been addressing father as father. Abba, daddy. Our father. But I'll often in my prayer life now and during the day as I address him I'll just say father I want to talk to you about this. But what I want to ask you is, is what is the process, the transition between Romans, the seventh chapter, where a distressed man I am, 
who will deliver me out from the body of this death? And his answer comes ringing, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself indeed with the mind serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Well, how's that broken by Jesus? Chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation to the ones in Christ Jesus. Well, how, how do you enter into Christ Jesus? I want to illustrate this from the story of Jacob. I'm going to share with you some thoughts from a book called uh, Coals of Fire um, by George Watson. He lived 1845, 1845 to 1923, so his primary preaching time was the latter part of the 19th century. I want to share with you some thoughts that he has. In Genesis, we find all the New Testament elements entering into our adoption into the house or the family of God. First, a way has to be open between God and man. He dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Now, Jesus tells us that this ladder was a type of himself. Nathaniel lived near the place of this ladder dream, and when Jesus met him, he associated him with Jacob, calling him an Israelite indeed, and promising him he should see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man in which Jesus identifies himself as the ladder from earth to heaven. Now, the first requisite in a New Testament conversion is a mediation, an open way between the sinner and God. This Jacob was given in a ladder. Some of you had this opening given by a friend speaking a word to you. Some, a book was given to you or a movie you saw. God has a myriad of ways to open this this mediation, this open way between God and the sinner. Now, We read, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereupon thou liest, to thee I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all the places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken of to thee. 
Now, is it possible for Jacob? How would it be to have a more accurate, tender, or elaborate assurance of his adoption by God that is conveyed in these remarkable expressions of divine grace? These words of absolute mercy Would God address such words to an alien or an unconverted soul? They were not spoken through an eloquent angel or a mumbling priest, but from Jehovah directly to Jacob. Here is an expression of divine fatherhood accompanied by a land grant and a covenant of grace extending to all the families of the earth and a promise of God's perpetual presence and of his keeping power. God never spoke such words to one who was not his child. Now Jacob had made a decision. He was following the direction of his mother and his father. He took the journey. He was on pilgrimage. And as he lay down in that desert place with a stone under his head, with no camels, no donkeys, just the clothes on his back, God came to him. And God claims him as his own. And where this all starts with me, with you, is God comes and he claims us as his own. And we're converted. Meaning, we say, yes, Lord. Now, Jacob, recognizing these gracious words coming from his father's God, said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. That is, he did not know the previous evening when he lay down that God was so near to him, but now the divine presence is known. It was not one of those old-style hope-so conversions in which a soul is supposed to be years finding out really whether God spoke it or not. But he had the witness within his heart. The vision lingered in his mind. The heavenly message was fastened in his heart and in his memory. And so he named this spot Bethel, meaning the house of God. He indicates then that he felt within himself that he was not just brought into the presence of God, but he was now in a covenant of grace with God. The house of God is the family of God, the kingdom of God. His sins were forgiven, for he felt himself at the very gate of heaven. Now, as a fruit of Jacob's conversion, he not only makes an open and enduring profession of God's manifestation to him, but he enters into a financial covenant with the Lord to give him one-tenth of all of his income. God was so pleased with this financial covenant that he made it the law for subsequent generations. If the giving of a tenth is God's idea of business, 
And if that same idea was in Jacob's heart, does it not prove that his heart had been so changed as to be in agreement with God? Now, I have to tell you, I have in the past severely denounced Jacob for making a money bargain with God. And yet there's not one word of reproof from the living God for this. Instead, the Lord emblazons his approval on this money bargain, and he made it a law for his church on the very basis of the poor man's prosperity. Look carefully at Malachi. It's remarkable to me the way we look sometimes at these old patriarchs and we come up with our own ideas and we go beyond Scripture in denouncing them and criticizing them. Jacob now is a converted man. Has he been dealt with fully by the Holy Spirit? No, he has not. And for some of us, it's taken many years even to begin to understand what I've called the Peter package, the way we come to Christ. Many of you have simply accepted what the preacher said to you, and you have said, okay, now I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Well, no, not necessarily. You may not be on your way to heaven. It takes time to be holy. It takes study. It takes the reading of the word. It takes obedience to the revelation of the Holy Spirit to your heart. Now, Jacob is going to enter into legal bondage. And if you read Galatians, the law is meant to lead us to Jesus. Many of you who are listening today are still caught in legal bondage. Legal bondage has its place. It has its work that it must accomplish until we're ready to be set free. So what do I mean by legality? I mean rendering service by law, by a rigid routine. It's measured off. I've met men who do this. They measure off their Christian life by the rituals of the church that they participate in. And they're very faithful in those rituals. But it's, it's a gospel of performance, serving God by the inch and the ounce. The book of Galatians is very elaborate as it unfolds the principles of legal service. In this epistle, Paul states a general fact that even the children of God who are in their spiritual minority, not yet delivered from the native reasonings and carnality of nature, have in their measure the same bondage that many sincere but unregenerate ceremonialists have. (laughs) It's interesting to me. It says in the scripture, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, 
That is, as long as he's still partly carnal, not in rebellion, but in his inner man, has not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is walking with him, but not in him. Differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but under a tutor and governor, until the time appointed of the Father, until he receives the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Spirit, Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, there are four kinds of religious laws that we're all acquainted with. The first three always bring the soul into bondage. The last one brings us into joyous service and and liberation. Before we look at Jacob's legal service, let me just identify and and our brother uh, Watson, George Watson, identifies these four kinds of law. First is the Edemic law, that is the law that was in place in the Garden of Eden. We don't know what that law was. It was never written down. It's never enunciated. But it was very much what was expected. And when it was violated, as Cain did in killing Abel, there was a severe judgment from God based upon that wickedness. The second law is what we find in the book of Exodus. It is the ceremonial or ritualistic law, which is prescribed and written out in terms of external duties. All of life and time is parceled out into specific rites and prayers and performances. And even today, many Christians still want to go back and come under those feast days and those laws I was raised in a home where the health laws, part of the ceremonial law, was very strictly enforced. There was absolutely never a taste of pork or ham. Uh, That was outlawed. All manner of unclean, no shellfish. I didn't have a, a taste until many years into my adult life of a shrimp because they were unclean. And this religion is measured out by the inch and the ounce. It feeds you like a baby with a spoon. And what happens in this is you become weary. It becomes slavery. And you begin to try to find ways to break free, but you feel guilty when you do. Now, you can find peace in all of this, but it's very difficult because there's a natural rebellion in the human heart against this kind of regimented life. I was raised in a home where coffee was not allowed, and I remember one day my father fixed himself a cup of coffee. Grandpa was visiting, and he was not a Christian. And Grandma had gotten some coffee for him, and so Dad made himself a cup of coffee. And I saw him doing this, and I was maybe age nine. 
and I stood there with tears running down my face because I was sure my daddy was going to go to hell because he'd had a cup of coffee. Well, that's legalism. It's not righteousness. Then there's the third law, and that was given at Mount Sinai. It is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. This law was actually written by the finger of God on tables of stone. It was not repealed by Jesus, as the antinomians teach. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, is still binding today. It is still in force. And it is a very hard law. It's impossible for anyone to keep the moral law until they've been brought fully into that relationship with Jesus where the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in a man or woman. It's here that imperfect Christians have their legal struggles. They have enough grace to make them love the moral law and they strive to keep the law in the full spirit as well as the letter but remaining impurity of heart foils their efforts and brings them into a struggling kind of bondage. Then there's a fourth kind of law. It's the law of faith. It's the law of life in Christ Jesus, the perfect law of liberty, as the Apostle James calls it. The 11th commandment, the law of love out of pure heart. This law of perfect faith working by love is the outlet from the bondage of the other laws. It's the open door that Jesus gives to us. The law of faith and love is just the reverse of legality. The legalist thinks if he could just keep the law, then God would save him. But the believer goes to Jesus first to get fully saved, and then he can keep the law. And he can keep the law only so long as Jesus continues to fully save him. Well, now let's turn to the story of Jacob. And we may not finish this study today in Jacob, but I will carry it on and finish it tomorrow if the Lord is willing for me to be on the air again tomorrow, every day I count as a wonderful blessing to talk to you about these deep things of the Spirit. Although Jacob was a son and an heir, yet he was under the law, and he learned severe lessons which led him to a life of perfect trust finally. Jacob's legal bondage is described in the 29th and the 31st of the book of Genesis. He was immature. He was a young man. He was not in full and happy fellowship with his parents. He was far away from home and the faces of loved ones shown only in memory. How many of you are in a similar condition. Instead of going on to perfection, you've allowed the fear of some Esau to come between you and them. 
and the smiles of God are not shining on you, and so you feel like you are dying in the desert. How often I've been there. So it's very easy at this stage to have your conversion aborted and sink into the legality of just attending church, not getting much out of it, but just going to get your ticket punched, trying to do a few things, but your cynical heart, because you've not gone on and finished the journey. You've allowed someone who's angry with you or or something that happened in the past to block your way. And there's bitterness in your heart. There's rancor in your heart. Now, you're either going to have to allow the Holy Spirit to walk beside you. You you notice I did not say to be in you. He's not in you yet. He's beside you. To walk you through this so that you can have that sweet communion with your Heavenly Father that I described that I was having this morning with Jesus and with the Spirit and with Father. So you know you're an heir. You know you were converted. But now you find yourself under stipulated wages. Jacob was going to inherit the vast wealth of Abraham. He had the blessing, the birthright blessing. And yet he is far removed from his legitimate fortune as a hired servant in Laban's house. And many of you are in this state serving for wages, doing this, giving that, going there, hoping thereby to get a little comfort. These heirs in exile entitled to the baptism of the Holy Spirit with its wealth of results, but instead you're under a legal taskmaster serving for wages, so much work for so much religion. Someone very angrily said to me, I'm not doing this for free. You're going to have to pay me and pay me big. Really? I thought this was because you love Jesus. Well, I do love Jesus. But this person became a very exacting taskmaster, bitter and angry, grabbing and growling. Wow, that's a hard person to be around. Does that describe you? He found himself under Laban the Syrian. Laban is an accurate type of the mere letter of the written law. The word Laban signifies whiteness, the mere letter of the law. Whether it's ceremonial or moral or holy or just or good, it is utterly, the law is utterly devoid of all mercy and all love. In judging of Bible characters, I always try to take sides with the Lord. It can, if I can find out the Lord's decision upon a person, 
I at once want to adopt it as mine, whatever the appearance to the contrary may be. I have that as a principle in my life. If I can identify what the Lord's decision about you is, I will act according to his decision, even sometimes through my tears. I've had precious people in my life that the Lord has cut off and said, okay, that's all. They have rejected me. They are going their own way. I cut them off. And Ray, don't reach out to them. Sometimes a person will act like they've been cut off, but the Lord says to me, keep reaching out. Keep reaching out. Keep reaching out. There is not one trace of approval of God on Laban's life. He does not have the blessing of God. He is rigid. You can read between the lines. He was rigid. He was exacting. He was merciless. He was always driving a hard bargain. Yet he was never getting rich. His daughters complained that their hard-hearted father had sold them instead of giving them away. He reduced everything, even the sweetest affections on earth, to a mere trade. Here's a picture of the cold iron of law. And yet legality is just such a spirit. It knows nothing but hard driving duties. It reduces prayer and devotion even the soul's espousal to Christ, to a sort of trade. It knows nothing of a glad, generous, loving service for no reason, just because of love. Not trying to grab, not trying to judge. The legalist always wants to judge. Oh, you're not this or you're not that. If you were just this, then I would. But you're not, so I'm not. They always penny pinch. My dad used to say some people make a a nickel squeal. Remember, there used to be a picture of a buffalo on the nickel, and he would say, you make that buffalo squeal. He said, one day I went. I was working at a very wealthy ranch. He was a ranch hand when he was young. He said, I went and I was invited to go to dinner one night at this house by the, by the sun. And so I said, yes, I'll go. So he said, I got all cleaned up and I went to dinner and I was really looking forward to it because they were a very wealthy family. He said, I sat down very gingerly. They greeted me. I sat down at the table, and he said the wife watched every morsel of food I took as though I had stolen it. He said her attitude was such that I dare not ask for seconds, and I dare not put too much on my plate. He said I walked away from that dinner hungry. I went home and fixed myself dinner. (laughs) He said, some people are just legalists. 
They don't just freely give. They demand, this is what you owe me. This is what I have to have from you. Illegalist. Laban was never satisfied. As time passed, he grew more and more exacting. He changed Jacob's wages ten times. Such is the nature of legal service. It never yields peace. There is never contentment if you are under a legalist. There's never any rest or satisfaction. Let one attempt to follow out a religion of the mere letter, and the duties are multiplied, the tasks grow more irksome, anticipated experiences are not reached. How touching are the words of Jacob to Rachel and Leah. He said, You know that with all my power I have served your father, and your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But the God of my father has been with me and suffered your father not to hurt me. But for what grace Jesus gives to his people in such a state, they would be crushed by the iron heel of legalism. This legalism is so real, and it's so easy to get caught in the trap. And then that legalism opens the door for us to rebel and good about rebelling and just go do what we want to do. And we are led then directly into rebellion against God. We're led directly into very direct sin because now we're going our own way and what we will do is set up our own legalistic system with our demands of others. I have been surprised and shocked by how God has come into my life, into my life, and has taken that legalism out of my spirit. And I rejoice that he has done that for me. That's why I am so free to speak about my great love for Jesus, who he is and what he's done for me. Now in the book of Romans, It says, there's now no condemnation to the ones in Christ Jesus not walking around according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ set me free from the law of sin and death. So there is a law, let me get it exactly, the law of the spirit of life, and there is a law of sin and death. And you must decide 
which law you want to function under. If you function under the law of sin and death, you will be a legalist, or you will be one who has thrown off all restraint, and now you're deep into drugs or deep into pornography or deep into fornication or some kind of adultery. You're free. You you just sin as you choose. But you know and I know if you've walked in that very long that you're walking in death. You have no joy. You have no peace. You have no life. You know that things aren't working for you. But there is a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And he sets us free. In the law of the spirit of life in Christ, we come to him and we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, I want to be I want to be clear with you what that is. And we're going to go in depth in that. Let me see if I can. Yes. Galatians, the second chapter, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and still am. In other words, This is a literal translation. I have been crucified with Christ, and I am still crucified with him. On the other hand, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one having loved me, and having handed himself over in my behalf, I do not set aside the grace of God for righteousness. For if righteousness is by law, then Christ died in vain. So there is an avenue of escape, total and complete, from the law. But it is called crucifixion with Christ. This is what we're going to talk about tomorrow. What does that mean? How are you crucified with Christ and continue to be crucified with him? And yet you live. Yet not you, but Christ lives in you. This is the most exciting thing in all the world, what Jesus has done for us. Well, we're out of time for this broadcast. I want to pray for you. Lord, I've tried to just very quietly humbly walk through this with brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will go forth and open a door of opportunity for every man and woman under the law or every man and woman who is walking in death and yet they've listened to this broadcast. Would you now go forth and ignite hope in their hearts that they could come into a deep place of understanding that would lead them into full crucifixion and life in you. Lord, would you make that so now in the name of Jesus? Amen. You know, I'm so clear. It's not the words I speak. 
but the Lord can use these words that I speak to bring you into that place of a new decision, if you're willing. Well, you've been listening to Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. This is Pilgrim's Progress. I'd love to hear from you. I've been checking the the internet for PayPal and haven't heard from many of you. You can go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and just click on the donate button. This is a faith ministry. It's I trust the Lord to move in your hearts to bring the resources. And I praise God that October is paid for. If the pledges come in, it is paid for. And I know the pledges will come in. Thank you, brother and sister. Well, you can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I love you. I'm glad you listened today. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus.